Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's agency podcast of the year. Every episode, we listen to and learn from people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shy Day New York. All right, thank you for tuning in. Our guest today is Maria Ross. Maria is an author, brand strategist, and speaker who believes cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. She's also the author of a fascinating book called The Empathy Edge. Maria, welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's great to be here. So I saw you at uh, the 3% conference. You did a fantastic conversation, and you were talking about your book, uh, The Empathy Edge. And, you know, as I'm in the audience, and you had a very nice audience, I must say. It must have been 100, 100 more people. Uh, I'm listening to this thing going, wow, this is like one of the more disruptive business ideas I've ever heard. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that you say empathy is not just good for society, it's good for business does get a little bit of sideways glances sometimes. But I think we're in a really exciting time where this conversation is being had in a lot of different corners. Um, and so my book was very timely in that these are conversations that companies are having, executives are having. People are thirsting for a new way to do business and a new model of capitalism even. Mm. And so it's pretty exciting to see that we're realizing that we can bring our values to work and it's not soft, it's not weak, but it actually fuels business success. And when I put together the book, The Empathy Edge, it was all about just curating all of that research. There, you know, there's data on this about how empathy, whether you're an empathetic leader, an empathetic culture or an empathetic brand, how that fuels you to success in your market. And so being able to just put a book together that makes the case for the skeptics that says, okay, great, you think this is really woo-woo and fluffy? Here you go. Here's the bottom line numbers and here's the data. Again, I, I just go back to the you know kind of core, I don't want to say skepticism because I'm quite open to new things, but there's a kind of a convention and I've seen the convention and, and I'm seeing a transition. I'm seeing a, you know, even a transformation uh, in, in um, my experience. But you know, we sort of come to business in a very, I would call it, uh, World War II General Patton model. <laughs> exactly. Right? It's, uh, you know, crush the competition. I mean, I remember, mm -hmm. you know, the points in my career where it wasn't enough that we won the pitch. The other agencies had to lose, you know? Right, right. Exactly. So how did this empathy, what's called this revolution uh, that's budding here, how, how has it started? Yeah, and I think it goes by many different names, but I think ultimately the the macro trend is that we're trying to humanize the workplace because we're realizing finally that people drive the business and mm. we spend the bulk of our time at work. And if we're miserable while we're there, if our customers are miserable when we're interacting with them, if we don't have good bosses, we don't have good colleagues, it impacts the output of the organization. And so what's exciting, again, I think it's because a lot of the data and the research is starting to get out there that Empathy actually spurs innovation. It improves the bottom line. In some cases, it improves share price. It increases customer loyalty. It increases your ability to retain your top talent and, more importantly, attract top mm. talent. And to your point, I think a lot of this trend is being driven by the incoming talent generations, mm. millennials and Gen Z. You know, they get a bad rap, 
but they're the ones that are forcing the change in the conversation. 71% of them want employers to feel like a second family. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not something I had as criteria when I was getting my first job out of college. I, no, no, I was no. just looking at paycheck and benefits and, you know, career opportunity. Right. And will, so, <laughs> will you hire you me? know, they again, they get a lot of bad flack, but good on them. They're brave enough to ask for the things that maybe our generations and generations before weren't brave enough to ask for because we are, as a society, spending more time at work. Mm-hmm. All right. So before we go even deeper, so what's a good definition of empathy? the word itself. So that was really interesting. I came across a lot of different definitions. I I spent about three years researching this book. And of course, there's the dictionary definition. There's every different definition from my interviewees. There's definitions that have changed over time. You know, empathy in the 1500s meant something very different than it does today. Where I landed was, especially for the lens of the book, was empathy is a mindset of taking another person's perspective and looking at things through their point of view. And the kicker for me, again, in writing the book was the last piece, which is, and then that informs a specific compassionate action. Mm. So it's not enough to just adopt the empathy mindset or the empathy lens. It's about what do you do with that information? Does that change the way you respond? Does that change the decisions you make, the policies that you put in place? That's where the rubber hits the road, is that you actually put it into action. And with the book, that is what I really emphasize is in giving leaders, cultures, and brands some action steps and some habits that they can actually try on to reap all the results of empathy. And and I think to go even a little bit deeper now, I mean, I liked how you had written about it for, you know, sort of action items as being compassionately competitive. That was one. Mm -hmm. Kindly ambitious. Empathetic yet decisive. I thought the way that you made empathy uh, not a nice to have, but you showed how the business imperative of it could actually materialize. I thought this was very smart. Yeah. And I think that there's always, there is a mindset out there that those things can't coexist. Right. And, you know, again, the data and the research and the case studies show that it absolutely can and for the benefit of the organization. So we need to change our mindset. For example, empathy doesn't mean you're being weak or you're caving. You know, let's not confuse empathy with acquiescence. Right. Empathy is about, again, perspective taking and mindset and then making a decision based on that. And sometimes you can be really, really empathetic and deliver news or make a decision that's not popular, but it's how you go about doing that that makes all the difference. Mm. One of my most empathetic bosses was someone who had to lay off the entire marketing team. Mm. So, you know, there's a way to go about things where it's not just giving people what they want, quote unquote, you know, or caving to the squeaky wheel. It's about a mindset. And I think, uh, you know, what's great about the book, you have a, a number of very good case studies and stories. Uh, I mean, the one that struck me uh, was the Microsoft story. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if, I don't know if you recall it off uh, the top of your head, but I just thought it was very powerful kind of if you look at it from – and I'll use the personalities, sort of, you know, uh, the bomb, you know, Steve Bomber, Microsoft mm-hmm. versus uh, Satya Nadella, Microsoft. It was very powerful. I don't know, maybe if you want to talk to us about that. Yeah, they've undergone a huge culture shift. And I do recall the story because my husband worked there under the previous administration. And, and I saw the effects firsthand and felt the impacts firsthand. But Satya has really brought his philosophy that empathy is one of the most important leadership traits you can bring to a role to be successful. He's really brought that to the organization. And talking to people now that have stuck it out and are still there, they say it's a completely different place because of his leadership and his stewardship around 
empathy and finding common ground and understanding how decisions that are made from the top impact everyone throughout the organization. Because prior to that, it was very siloed. Uh, there was lack of clarity. Things changed every six months. Mm. Your roles changed. The org structure changed. So there were a lot of different things that impacted people negatively. And you don't do your best work when you're mm -hmm. impacted that way. You don't have room to innovate and be creative because you're too worried about watching your back. And so it's one of those pragmatic things where if you create an empathetic culture and you are an empathetic leader, you're getting the best out of your people, which, again, fuels the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I hear you on that. And I, I love the way you talked about how they started to apply empathy to their customers. And that was a revelation that suddenly, you know, really think about, and I think you do this in your practice, you know, don't just do a, a you know, straight demo, you know, here's a woman, you know, uh, you know 34 to, to, to 49. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe talk a little bit about your process of bringing, you know, seeing the world, whatever the brand is, mm -hmm. through the eyes of the customer. Yeah, that's a big part of my practice. I, I help companies with their brand strategy and core brand story. But the biggest part of my business has always been around, let's look at who our ideal customer is and not as this big vanilla generic blob that doesn't exist in real life, you know, but who is Jane? Who is Rob? What are their fears? What are their values? What are their aspirations? And what are their pain points? What is their life like? And how does our product, service, or offering fit into that? And it's an exercise where sometimes I get some very skeptical CEOs going, I don't understand why I have to talk about like where they like to shop or what movies they like or their hobbies. But it gets you to what do they value and what do they crave and what do they fear? And then you can adapt your messaging, even your offerings themselves, to what's going to benefit them the most. So it's not about trying to shove a solution down their throat and convince them to buy something they don't need, but it's about seamlessly fitting into the fabric of their life. And you can't do that without empathy. If your product designers, if your engineering team, if your marketing and sales team don't understand what's driving the behavior and the needs of the customer, you can never engage, you can never connect. And we see examples of marketing and sales and advertising all the time where we think, what were they thinking? You know? <laughs> they clearly don't know this market. They clearly don't understand what our lives are like. And as a woman, I can say a lot of brands that try to market to women make this mistake over and over and again, thinking they know what women want. And it's like, did you talk to any? <laughs> so it's, 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 it's just sort of, for me, it's always been one of those like common sense things. Like how can you market or sell an offering if you don't understand the needs of the person you're talking to? But it's amazing how revolutionary that is. And I'm not saying companies can't be successful if they haven't done a good job of that. But, you know, it's a lot more successful if you're intentional about it, as I'm sure you've seen with your clients as well. Oh, yeah. Well, by the way, you know, common sense, that's the least common of all the senses. So. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> so, you know, you, you kind of break out the world, uh, the business advantages of, of empathy, how to be a more uh, empathetic leader, uh, empathetic cultures, and then empathetic brands. Mm -hmm. I mean, of those four, anything you want to go deeper on? Yeah, and I think, you know, for those three aspects, it's really a concentric circle. One builds on the next. And, and that's actually a, a foundation of my brand practice is that you can't just slap a coat of brand paint on your business and hope it sticks. That's why culture and brand are so tightly aligned. Mm. You have to be walking your talk internally so that when you deliver a message to the market that says you are a certain way or you're trying to create a certain impression, it's authentic. And so 
even though I come at it from a brand strategy perspective, I had to do the research and talk to people about, okay, well, at the individual level, at the leader level, you know, one person within the organization, what does that mean to be empathetic? And then how does that ripple out into the culture that they create? And then how does that culture impact the brand experience for our external customers. So I don't think any one thing is more important than the next, but I think what is probably most relevant to maybe people listening to this is what can I do? Like I'm not the CEO of my company, my culture sucks, I have no authority to change the way things are done, but the thing is you as an individual can have an impact within your sphere of influence. Whether that's your specific team, the colleagues you work with, you can become that model of success so people look to you and say, wow, that person is being kind and competitive. That person does care about the bottom line, but they also care about people. And look how far they're getting with that philosophy. I want to be like that person. And they can create, again, within their own sphere of influence, whatever needs to be done to impact those people and make those ripples ripple out. That's that's the old Gandhi school, right? Be the change you want to see in the world. Exactly. And there might come a time where it's like, look, I'm in a vacuum here within my organization. And if you're miserable in an organization, you know, you don't have to stay there. But hopefully that becomes the model and you start to become a success within your organization and people wonder how you did it. Right. And it's like, oh, that person's a really good collaborator. They find common ground. They see other people's point of view. They're able to get projects done. They're able to innovate all because of empathy. Now, in your experience, has someone read your book and said, okay, Maria, you must come here because we are the antithesis of empathy? (laughs) I mean, have you ever, I mean, have you ever really had to just do like a major transformation? And, And I guess the thing that's really underlying my question is, can people be taught empathy? Well, the the interesting thing, well, on that note first, the first question, the book just came out in October. So I'm starting to hear a little bit like, can you come in and do a workshop? Can you come in and do this? You know, and all of that. But to your question about can people be taught empathy, this is, you know, I'm going to get on my soapbox right now. But this is the thing. That's BS when people say I'm just not naturally empathetic mm-hmm. because science shows and I did, you know, I found the research that humans are hardwired in their DNA for empathy, unless you're a sociopath. But we are really hardwired as a species to have empathy. They've done studies on babies that show that this is sort of a natural reflex. But what happens is, just like working out, there's people that grow up going to the empathy gym every day. They're in an environment where empathy is rewarded. It's cultivated. It's part of the standard operating procedure. And they are used to flexing that muscle more. Other people don't have that. They haven't been to the gym in a while. Things have atrophied a little bit. And so they're not as comfortable and it's not as automatic for them, which is why there's so many organizations doing work with really young people about making sure empathy is embedded in their DNA and they don't have to think about it, Mm. preschools and, and things like that. So... The excuse of I'm not naturally empathetic just means you haven't gone to the gym in a while. Mm. And so that's why in the book, especially under the leadership section, which is really about individuals, here are some exercises you can try. And they're going to feel forced at first. And that's okay. Any new habit feels forced at first. You know, the excuse of like, well, this feels fake, so I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-uh. Like it feels fake to try to do a pull-up for the first time, you know. But you have to keep at it so that eventually it's just automatic What's, and uh, it will hurt at first. Yes, like like sit-ups. Exactly, um, exactly. <laughs> what, what's your favorite uh, empathy exercise for someone? 
I think the most important one, well, there's two. So the most important one, which is why I listed it first in, in the book, was that you have to practice presence, which again, throws a couple people off because they're, oh, that's a little woo-woo for me. But presence can be whatever that is for you. So whatever grounds you, whether it's meditation, whether it's taking a walk, whether it's taking a few deep breaths, taking a step back, because if you are too caught up in your own stuff and your own ego and all the thoughts going through your own mind, you have no space to take on another person's perspective. Mm. So you have to sort of clear your own mechanism first. And there's different folks I talk to for the book that do that in different different leaders that do that in different ways. You know, some go into a meeting, you know, taking a few breaths. Some leaders run a meeting where everyone does a grounding exercise at first before they jump into the business of doing business. And it really gives them a perspective to open up, calm themselves, and be open and less defensive to adopting someone else's point of view, especially if it's contentious, right? And the other one I really love is, especially for me because I am this way, is that curiosity is the biggest trait of the most highly empathic people. And what that means is it's kind of related to the presence piece. When you run into a disagreement, when you run into a misunderstanding, when you're really mad at someone, what's your first reaction? So instead of here's why you're wrong and I'm right, ask questions, Mm. get curious, become an investigative journalist and say, well, why do you feel that way? What's prompting that course of action? How do you see success? What is your goal in this situation? And just keep asking questions and get the person talking because eventually you're going to find common ground and you can build up from there. And the side benefit is you can have empathy for that person because now you've listened enough and asked enough questions to see their point of view. Mm. It doesn't mean you're going to agree with them, but now at least you know where they're coming from. By the way, those are all the secrets to running a podcast. You've just given it away to everybody. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't recall if this was in your session uh, at 3%, but there was something about um, – because you you'd mentioned about entering meetings. Mm-hmm. And I had heard that you know one of the worst things you can do as a leader is to enter a meeting with a joke. <laughs> Because there's been a meeting that's already been happening before you, and it's best to just kind of go in, sort of sit down, settle, and just sort of, you know, read and kind of, you know, hear the room a little bit. I had not heard that, but that's interesting. But I think your point about reading the room is spot on. I mean, being able to read the room and let other people, give other people that opportunity to read the room and read each other as well. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, as someone who's, uh, you know, I've been a CEO now for uh, about five years, and um, people ask, you know, what's the thing that is, you know, um, that you need the most uh, to succeed? And, uh, you know, I sound like a broken record, but it, it's really the ability to listen mm-hmm. because, you know, it's, people have, you know, whether it's their issues or you're, you've got a problem and you're, you, know, you are questing for a solution – you're probably going to hear it. And I feel like listening, you know, again, as I was, you know, listening, reading your book, I feel like listening is a big part of empathy. Like you have to really kind of just go, okay, enough about me. Focus on them. Where are they coming from? Right, exactly. I mean, there's no way you can understand another person's point of view until you hear their story. And believe me, I'm no prize at this. Like I'm Italian and a redhead. I have, you know, I'm a little impatient. Um, So I have to consciously, you know, this is where we get to the, you know, it feels forced. I have to consciously do this when I'm in really contentious situations. You work with clients. I work with clients. There's lots of contentious situations that come up. You, You see them going down the wrong path, right? And I have to take a step back and say, okay, 
you know, I call it my internal shusher in my head is like, <laughs> just listen, just listen to what they're saying. Don't think about what you're going to say next and why they're wrong. Just hear them out. For me, it helps me to take notes mm -hmm. because it forces me to listen to what the other person's saying and not keep in my head what I'm trying to say back to them. So that's a nice little hack that you can do to help yourself listen better. But you have to just consciously do it. And, and listening's hard. It's oh, yeah. hard when we all have so much to say. Oh, yes. <laughs> one of my favorite stories, I don't know if you know this one, is that I guess Bill Birnbach of Doyle Dane Birnbach fame, father of uh, modern creativity, mm -hmm. he would hold his piece of paper uh, in his in his pocket. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for every client meeting, you know, he would just sort of, you know, if there was a moment of contention, you know, as the story, as I heard it, you know, the hand would go in and he would touch the paper. Uh, and then uh, someone once asked him, I said, you know, Bill, what was the, what's that piece of paper? And he said, oh, it's the piece of paper that said, you know, when I open it and read it, it says, maybe the other person's right. Oh, I love that. You know? <laughs> That's a really good one. So, yeah. So I, I, I'm with you. Well, I was also thinking, you know, for the listeners today, you know, you're the, the queen of empathy here. <laughs> uh, are there any brands out there uh, that you'd say, wow, that is probably the icon of empathy? I think there's quite a few doing things right and for different reasons. Um, you know, one of the things, like we mentioned earlier, that you have to be authentic in your culture and your leadership so that your brand can be seen as empathetic. Because really your brand is just the actions of a collection of people. Mm. And so the brands that really put their money where their mouth is when it comes to empathy or compassion or service or humility, however they define empathy for themselves, have policies in place. They have training. They have rewards and accountability. These are all markers that you should be doing with your culture if you truly want to be an empathetic culture and not just have it be like a pretty poster on your wall that says, hey, we're empathetic, something you tell new hires, right? Mm -hmm. But what are you actually doing to operationalize empathy is what I call it. Mm. Because you can. You can legislate empathy. You can legislate an environment and create an environment with policies or technology or perks that makes it really easy for people to make a good decision, right? So there's a company called NextJump, technology company, and they have created a, a winning culture. They've been included in a book called An Everyone Culture, which is where Harvard cites companies as deliberately developmental organizations. And internally, they talk about one of their core values being humility, which is very closely linked to empathy. But they don't just say that's their core value. Again, it's not just a nice bullet point on their website. They issue an annual award called the Avengers Award to a person voted by their peers that helps others the most by however that nominating person defines it, because they really focus on service for others. And folks are nominated all year, and then those people go on to a peer selection committee. And the winner gets a paid vacation anywhere in the world for their entire family. Hmm. So talk about accountability and rewards and putting your money where your mouth is. And in 2008, they actually went a step further and also rewarded the winner's talking partner, which is like their mentor program, for enabling that winner's success. Hmm. So the stakes were really high and they were committed and they showed that they weren't messing around when it, they said they valued humility. Airbnb is another one where their brand is built on this idea of belonging and creating a sense of belonging and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And it permeates everything the company does internally and externally, from how they design their office space to what they reward people for on their performance evaluations to the experience they give for customers and for their hosts. Mm -hmm. They put an insurance company in place for hosts because they were so empathetic that many hosts were seeing 
home damage at one point. And so several years ago, they decided to put a $1 million liability policy in place for all their hosts. And that was born out of empathy for wanting to make the experience better for them. It wasn't just a cost-driven, right. you know, well, we can't afford to do that. Right. You know, when, if you're going to be a host on Airbnb, you're going to take your chances. No, they were like, these are our people. How do we take care of them? This is what they're going through. Let's put a policy in place. And everything they do, that thread of belonging, is it weaves itself through their advertising, through their other marketing, through their website experience, through customer service, everything they do that thread of belonging is there. So again, maybe another word for empathy. But they're doing a great job. REI does a phenomenal job. They know their members. They are their members. Mm -hmm. And you know, when they implemented their opt-out side campaign where they closed on Black Friday, it's a story I tell in the book, that was born not out of what can we do for our customers to make us look empathetic. Mm -hmm. It was actually born out of an employee discussion of what the holidays meant to people. And they said, you know, it means family, it means friends, it means love, but you know, our society's gotten so crazy. And someone shouted out, well, what, you know, what would happen if we closed on Black Friday and told everybody to go be with their families? Mm. And they were like, we could, we could never do that. But they did it. Right. And they showed it was wildly successful for them. Because again, it was like they were in lockstep with their customers and what their customers valued. So I oh, think yeah. they do a great job of that. Yeah, I've I've always found Black Friday the most soulless, you know, moment Ugh. on the calendar. So yeah, good 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 for them. No, it's terrific. Those, those I know. are great examples. So you've got this theory. You're you you've turned it into a practice. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about your journey. Something happened in your life, as as, as I heard, that mm -hmm. that kind of opened you up to this world of empathy. So may, maybe tell that story about kind of how you really saw empathy in action, and that really changed your life. Yeah, I mean, I think I've always had an empathetic bent, but something very profoundly struck me in terms of what can happen with an, when an organization is empathetic. Uh, in 2008, I almost died from a ruptured brain aneurysm. It was unexpected. I was very healthy, prime of my life, just started my business, and I almost died. So I was in the hospital for six weeks, and I was fortunate enough to be in Seattle at the time, and I was staying at Harborview and at UW Medicine. And they follow a philosophy called patient and family-centered care. It's a global movement among hospital providers which again is one of those common sense things, right? Like let's center everything around the patient's needs and the needs of the caregiving team around the patient, mm. whether that's their family or their friends. So they adopted this philosophy like many other hospitals and they created policies, as I said, operationalized it, policies, training, procedures that were put in place because of the perspective of the patient. But I didn't know any of that mm. when I was in the hospital for six weeks and nearly blind and with no short-term memory. Mm. I didn't know that the reason my husband could come visit me at any time of day, there were no visiting hours. I didn't know that I could choose my own menu every day from a list on almost like a room service menu at, at a time when... You know, when you're in the hospital, your dignity's gone, your autonomy's gone. Plus, plus, you're from an Italian family, so the food's going to be. Yeah, an issue. well, there's that too. Yeah, there's that too. <laughs> Food is important, um, but all these little things right. made the experience so amazing that I be I ended up becoming a patient advisor for the hospital mm. to be the voice of the patient because they value the voice of the patient when they're creating new educational materials, mm. when they're putting new processes in place. I was doing trainings for new hires wow. to give the voice of the patient. So I saw firsthand what the experience can be like and how an organization doesn't just have to rely on hiring a bunch of really nice people. 
Like they can actually operationalize it. Mm. And when I started digging in further, I found that, of course, like many of these things, like my book is trying to prove, you know, if, if you want to adopt empathy for selfish reasons, it improves the bottom line, it saves on costs, it yada, yada, yada. That's exactly why this movement took off was starting with a very selfish intent of hospital systems saying, how do we cut costs? How do we decrease patient readmissions? How do we create a better patient satisfaction mm. surveys for ourselves? Oh, let's do things from their point of view. <laughs> what a shocker, you know? Yeah, Amazing. I know. Again, it's that common sense, right? But to experience that was what lit my fire around this and to go, oh, my gosh, this is not just let's just tell all our employees to be nicer to the patients. Right. No, right. let's create a framework. Let's put an infrastructure in place that enables them to easily make the right choice. By the way, I, as, you, as you explain this, I think, it, I think it's extraordinary. And I wonder if uh, not having these um, restricted visiting hours and really seeing things from the patient, does the patient recover faster so they turn the beds over faster, which is actually more efficient? You know, suddenly... I imagine that might be happening. I think that is one of the vectors. And uh, yes, I think you're right. They, what they call it is the patient has better outcomes. Mm -hmm. So however they're measuring that. But I would imagine, I mean, at least from my experience, I mean, I had to be there for six weeks, but my experience was it did help me recover faster. You know, I wasn't stressed. I wasn't upset. I wasn't, you know, I didn't feel humiliated. Um, one of their other practices is they, they always introduce themselves when they walk into a room and they explain what they're doing. They don't just start poking you, you know, drawing blood <laughs> or doing whatever, poking and prodding you. Right. And so that's huge when you're like, especially me, I was temporarily blind wow. from my from my hemorrhage. And I didn't I didn't know who was walking into my room. I didn't know what they were doing. I couldn't I mean, I could kind of see what they were doing, but not really. And so, you know, again, that was like another way where my, it kept my blood pressure down. It mm. kept my stress down. So that's got to be good when you're in a hospital. So you can extrapolate that to any business where it's like we say we're customer centric, you know, like some airlines who say we're all about customer service. And then they kick paying customers off a flight to make room for their own employees right. who shall remain nameless. But that's where I'm talking about the disconnect of saying you're empathetic, but actually building an empathetic organization. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, you know, I was sitting here thinking, I wonder if you're a company now, how much resource are you wasting on angst and anger? You know, there's always these kind of chronic squabbles in any given company. Mm -hmm. And if you were just empathetic versus, mm -hmm. you know, like you say, you know, building your reason why you're wrong, mm -hmm. how much more efficient you would be? Oh, well, there's there's data around that, too. So in terms of decreased engagement, because there there is a correlation between if you have an empathetic workplace, your employees are more engaged, right? Therefore, if you don't have an empathetic workplace, your engagement is probably down, your employee engagement. That leads to 37% more absenteeism, 60% mm. more errors in work, 18% lower productivity, and 16% lower profitability. Mm. So there are numbers around what companies are losing when they fail to pay attention to this. Hmm. Well, I read something great in your book as, as we wind up here. Uh, and I love this phrase, and I love it for any initiative. You wrote, uh, start small, think big. I love that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just so, so great. So mm -hmm. maybe you can give someone, you know, one piece of advice. We have, you know, CMOs who listen to the show. We have rising mm -hmm. stars in the business. I mean, what's maybe a piece of advice for someone who 
wants to start to become more empathetic. Because like you said, it's going to emanate from a single person. Mm-hmm. So if they're working in a, you know, maybe a toxic culture or a you know, too overly performance culture, what's a good piece of advice to start uh, their empathy journey? Yeah, I mean, and I what I love about this is it sounds very daunting of like, we need this big, huge transformation project to become a more empathetic organization. <laughs> Ideally, if you are the CMO or you are in a leadership position, it'll have much more traction much, much faster. <laughs> but I think from an individual level, a couple of the things that we talked about in terms of practicing presence and getting curious and listening more is really where we can start. From an organizational standpoint, things like Doing an audit of your processes from the customer's point of view. Mm. That's one of the things I talk about in the leadership section is get in the trenches. If you are a software company, use your own software. And I've been in software for a long time, and you'd be surprised how many companies don't use their own software. But if you, you know, if you run an airline, fly and coach every once in a while and see what it's like. You know, don't be afraid to get in the trenches. Work the customer service lines for a day or have other people do that. And I think that's a great first step to open your eyes to what the issues are, because I don't think it's a bunch of bad people not wanting to be empathetic. I think it's just we get so busy and we get into our own stuff and we are in our little ivory tower and we don't really understand what the actual experience on the ground is. And so any opportunity you have, depending on your organization, take that opportunity and maybe make that part of the culture in that one day every quarter, somebody has to do someone else's job Mm. or deal with something with a customer if they're not customer facing, for example. I think not only do you get a good understanding of the customer, you also get an appreciation for the jobs of your colleagues. Mm. And that's empathy for them internally of like, you know, marketing, actually going on a sales call with a sales rep. Maybe there'd be more peace and harmony between sales and marketing if they all understood each other's lives a little bit better. So I think that those are places you can start. And if you're not in a position to sort of mandate that, bring it up, you know, offer it up to leadership and say, I'd like to work the customer service lines for a day. Can I go do that? And see what what happens. See what what it cracks open in your organization. Well, that's great advice, Maria. This your book, The Empathy Edge. It's it's a very special book. I, I really hope a lot of people read it. Thank you. And uh, you've been a fantastic guest, and I'm I'm really happy that uh, you made it through that moment at UW Hospital because I think you're really, you're, you're really bringing <laughs> something too. special to the world. I, you know, I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Thank you uh, for being on the show, and uh, I hope to see you soon. Yes, absolutely. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's Agency Podcast of the Year. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com.